0: You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with David McCullough. This program originally aired in 2011. This is Word of Mouth on New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, historian and author David McCullough from Writers on a New England Stage. McCullough is one of the nation's most eminent and well-known historians. He was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for his biography of Harry Truman, and again for his book on John Adams. His clear, knowing voice added distinction to Ken Burns' Civil War and a number of other television epics and series. David McCullough visited the music hall in Portsmouth to talk about his new book, The Greater Journey, Americans in Paris. The book follows famous artists, writers, scholars, and some figures lost to history who defied the American movement West by heading East, to Paris. McCullough set the book in the 19th century, long after Adams and Jefferson had headquartered there, and before the influx of American expats like Ernest Hemingway and Gertrude Stein. It was a time of intellectual and creative awakening for Americans who drank in the opportunity and romance of the City of Light. McCullough took the stage in front of an eager audience, sounding less Augusta Storian than a romantic himself, beginning by thanking his charming wife of 56 years, Rosalie.
1: We have a large family. We have five children and 18 grandchildren, and Rosalie is Mission Control, (laughs) Secretary of the Treasury and Chair of the Ethics Committee. (laughs) She's also the best dancer I've ever danced with in my life, and I adore her, and I would love for you to meet her. Rosalie, would you please stand up right down here? The uh, pleasure that I've had in working on this book is really almost more than I can describe, and I think that what I'm trying to do in this book and every book is to get close to the people that I'm writing about. The time they lived in, the places they lived in. And one of the most engaging of the characters in this book was a young fellow named George Healy, who was an Irish boy who grew up in Boston and who had considerable talent with drawing and painting and who decided that he was going to go to Paris because he felt he had to go to Paris in order to excel in his chosen field. This ambition to excel was a driving force, not ambition to, to be rich or to be famous or to be powerful, but to be as best as he could be. And it was true of virtually all of those that I've written about, but I want to read you something that he himself said. He went over in, in the early 1830s. In those far off days, there were no art schools in America, he wrote. No drawing classes. No collections of fine plaster casts, and very few picture exhibitions. Now keep in mind, there are no art schools, there are no schools of architecture, schools of medicine are woefully behind, medical practice is woefully behind. More than half of all the doctors in the United States had never been to medical school. They'd trained with other doctors who'd never been to medical school, passing along their ineptness. <laughs> and and the medical schools by European standards were very far behind, and the greatest medical center in the world was Paris. I knew no one in France. I was utterly ignorant of the language. I did not know what I should do when once there, but I was not yet one in 20, and I had a great stock of courage, and this is a part I love, and of inexperience, which is sometimes a big help, and a strong desire to be my very best. Today there are seven portraits by George Healy hanging in the White House, including the magnificent painting of Abraham Lincoln. There are 17 of George Healy's portraits hanging in the National Portrait Gallery. One of his greatest of all portraits is done of Abraham Lincoln, soon after Lincoln was elected president, still in Springfield, Illinois, and had yet to grow his beard. And it was while Healy was painting Abraham Lincoln that Lincoln sat reading to him a letter from a young woman saying that, Mr. Lincoln, you would be much handsomer if you grew a beard, and Lincoln asked Healy if he'd like to paint him with a beard, and Healy said, no, sir. So we have this wonderful painting of Lincoln before all the cares and burdens of his office during that that terrible time of the Civil War, and it's very uh, touching to see how um, much he would change in just a few years after the painting was completed. George Healy, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Sr., who was a medical student. Charles Sumner, the great advocate for abolition, the most powerful voice for abolition in the United States Senate at the time of the Civil War. Samuel F. B. Morse, inventor of the telegraph and a painter. James Fenimore Cooper, who was the first American novelist of any consequence. Mary Cassatt, John Singer Sargent, and people like Elihu Washburn, who were diplomats and whose names ought to be much better known than they are because of the heroic uh, roles that they performed during extremely adverse conditions in Paris, and numerous others who came back bringing something home, either literally or figuratively, an idea, a skill, a work of art, a work of sculpture. Augustus Saint-Gaudens, our greatest American sculptor, in my view and the view of many, uh, trained in Paris and went back to Paris twice more in his life to work there because, as he said, he needed Paris. And two of his greatest works, the Farragut statue of Admiral Farragut that's in Madison Square in New York and his magnificent equestrian statue of General Sherman and the Goddess of Victory at 59th and 5th Avenue in New York, right by the entrance to Central Park, Both those magnificent pieces, two major American works of art, were made in Paris. So, the part that these people played in our history, in shaping our culture, is unquestionable. Henry James, Henry Adams, among the writers. And I felt that the period between 1830 and 1900 had been neglected unjustly. And I felt that the chance to tell that story was an adventure or a journey that I wanted to go on, too. Now, in writing conventional history or biography, you're fairly locked into what happened and the chronology of what happened. You can't leave somebody out because you find him boring, or you, and you can't skip around some major event because it simply doesn't interest you much. With this book, I was able to cast my own show, so to speak, because I could pick and choose people of consequence that interested me. And that was a luxury uh, that uh, was joyous. In in effect, I auditioned them. They'd come in, they'd tell me their story. (laughs) They'd show me what they could do, and I would say, don't call me, I'll call you. (laughs) And um, I couldn't include them all because then it would become a catalog, not a book. So the criteria were, what did they bring home? Did they record their experiences in Paris? This is crucial. And were they changed by the experience? Winslow Homer, for example, uh, went to Paris as a painter, but he was pretty well formed, not just as a painter, but as a grown man, and he wasn't changed by it. Someone like Mary Cassatt, however, was tremendously changed. And her courage in, in following a path that would take her to become, as she said, not a woman who paints, which was how socially acceptable young ladies would refer to their interest in painting, but as a painter. And she became, indeed, an American painter, an American master, and was the first American, the only American, to be invited in and included with the Impressionists by the Impressionists themselves. John Singer Sargent was very different because he was born in Europe, but why his parents were there is another story because they were wealthy or had been wealthy Philadelphians, socially prominent, who were living in exile, really, self-imposed exile, because they couldn't stand to, to, to not keep up appearances back in Philadelphia with their financial wherewithal gradually disappearing. So they went to Europe because there they could maintain the facade of being people of some means, and they never came back. But when this boy appeared on the scene, this phenomenon, John Singer Sargent, it transformed their lives into one of accomplishment. And he was truly a genius at 18 years old. He uh, was a phenomenon to everyone who saw his work in Paris, and he trained in Paris. John Singer Sargent's three major works, his famous Madame X of Madame Goutreau, which hangs in the Metropolitan Museum, the Daughters of Edwin Boyd, which hangs in the the MFA in Boston in the New Wing, and his famous El Haleo, the uh, magnificent big painting of the Spanish dancer, the flamenco dancer, which is in the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. All three of those paintings were done when Sargent was still in his 20s. My particular favorite among the creative people, the artists, is St. Gaudens, who was a New York City street kid, much in the same way that George Healy was a Boston boy off the streets. St. Gaudens was put to work when he was 13 years old, his father was an immigrant shoemaker, and at 19, he managed to have enough money saved uh, that he went to Europe to study uh, in Paris, and he went steerage. We all, we all know and understand all those people who came this way uh, from Ireland and Germany and elsewhere in steerage, but these were, these were young Americans who were going the other way in steerage. Ambition. Ambition to excel. And w- one of the most telling things that St. gaudens ever said. I've used it at the beginning of, of my book as sort of the, uh, the emblem for the whole story. Now, keep in mind, if you've never seen the inside of a, of a sculptor's studio, particularly if they're working on major pieces, is enormous. It's a workshop. And um, St. gaudens wrote about this atmosphere. He said, "'For we constantly deal with practical problems.'" with molders, contractors, derricks, stonemen, trucks, rubbish, plasterers, and whatnot all else, all the while trying to soar into the blue. That's what they're all trying to do, to soar into the blue. It's what so many of us are trying to do with our lives where we deal with all the paraphernalia and the whatnot all else, as he says. In one of the wisest things that any President of the United States ever wrote, John F. Kennedy said this, This country cannot afford to be materially rich and spiritually poor. The life of the arts, far from being an interruption, a distraction in the life of a nation, is very close to the center of the nation's purpose and is a test of the quality of a national civilization. I look forward to an America which commands respect throughout the world, not only for its strength, but for its civilization as well. What I've tried to write about is the American civilization and to convey a feeling that has gathered more momentum in my own outlook, in my own mind, uh, year by year. And that is that history is much, much more than just politics and the military. That what we are has much more to do Uh, with other matters of concern and creative energy and production and that history ought to be understood that way it ought to be written that way and it ought to be taught that way we too often chop things up into categories particularly in the academic world there's the history of art there's the hist, and there's history Uh, there's this and there's that and you better not try to cross the barriers between them and remember there are many civilizations, ancient civilizations, whereby all we know about them is their art and their architecture. I've come to think of architecture particularly, and music particularly, as maybe the most important expressions of the human spirit, in that they're all around us. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which was then proudly the hometown of Gene Kelly. And at 15 or so, we were just so pleased that he went to Peabody High School, which was our local high school. And then along came the Americans in Paris, the Gershwin music, and Gene Kelly dancing through Paris as a painter and having an unimaginably marvelous time with all the beautiful women. And I thought, there's my man. <laughs> I wanted to be a painter. and I became extremely interested in Paris and in Gershwin and in art. And so in many ways, I've been writing in this book about a subject that's interested me all my life. Rosalie thinks it's the most autobiographical of my books. And I have to say that there were some people who were a little skeptical when I set up what I was doing because they felt it was different from what I'd done before. You bet it's different. It's one of the reasons I wanted to do it. I've never undertaken a subject about which I knew a great deal. I never knew much about Truman or John Adams or the Brooklyn Bridge or Panama, and it was because I had this sense of how much I was going to learn that I wanted to do it. If I'd known all about it, if I were an expert in the subject, I wouldn't want to write the book. What would I learn? And with this book, I've learned so very much. Elihu Washburn was a name that meant nothing to me. He was our ambassador to Paris, our minister, as they called him then during the Franco-Prussian War, during the horrific siege of Paris when the Germans had the city surrounded and they were starving everyone to death, starving the city into surrendering. And later during the commune, the awful violent, vile convulsion of civilization that uh, erupted in Paris, Frenchmen killing Frenchmen in one of the most uh, vicious and atrocity filled experiences in human history. Just god-awful. And in the City of Light. And that too is part of the story. That too is part of the American story because this man, Elihu Washburn, alone of all the representatives, diplomatic representatives, all the major powers, he alone stayed on because he felt it was his duty to do so as long as there were Americans in the city. And he kept a diary. And the diary has been found just within the last few years as a result of work on this book. It's it's extraordinary for many reasons. One is it's the most vivid eyewitness account of the atrocities, of the suffering, and of the courage and the bravery of the French people in Paris during the siege that's available to us in English. There's nothing comparable, and I don't know of anything comparable in French. But it's also an example of a man who had very little education except what he got himself by going to libraries and by working very hard, who wrote superbly, this comes through again and again in the letters of people like St. Gaudens and Healy who had virtually no education as we would know it today. Stopped school at about the seventh grade. And yet their use of the English language, their capacity to express themselves in the English language is humbling. And they didn't think of themselves as writers. Now we read, for example, that our business schools, and there are more than one or two of them, are requiring their students to take a course in writing, because they find that these students, graduates of our universities and colleges, can't write a simple, clear letter or report. So we're not doing a very good job of that. And we're not doing a very good job of teaching history, either at home or as we would want it to be in our colleges and universities, high schools and grade schools. My hope is that all of us who care about this can help more than we're doing by encouraging our children and our grandchildren to read, by encouraging our children and grandchildren to come with us to historic sites and to see how much these places have meant, not just in the story of our country, but how much they mean to us. All the great teachers knew, know that the way to teach is to show them what you love, and we can do that too. We can't just count on the teachers to do all the work. We have to do the work. If there's a problem with American education today, it's us, all of us. We've got to bring back the dinner table conversation. We got to bring back dinner. <laughs> and we've. And we've got to always keep in mind and say that there is no one more important in our society, no one doing more important work in our society than our teachers. They are the people who matter. And we must not, must not do anything to make their jobs harder. Obviously, they need to be paid more, but they need more respect, they need more expressions of gratitude for the job they're doing. Rosalie and I have one son who teaches English in public high school in Massachusetts. We are so proud of his career, his work, but we also know the difficulties teachers face today. And much of the problem has to do with the parents, the parents riding the teacher to get child a better grade so the child can get into a better college or university but you know all this my point in bringing it up is we have in this country more choice more opportunity in the realm of ideas and learning than any civilization ever when you walk into a major bookstore There are anywhere from 50 to 150,000 different titles to choose from in the one store. Nobody has ever had such choice. And if the cost of a book, or the cost of accumulating your own personal library is beyond uh, what somebody can meet financially, we have the great public library system, which we must never ever take for granted. I've had the chance to work in every imaginable kind of library in our country. Universities, public libraries, archival collections. And I know that it isn't just the books and the rare manuscripts that comprise the treasures of those institutions. It's the people who work there and how much they know. With this particular book, I've drawn on more than 30 different libraries and institutions. And some of it's been thrilling. At the Dartmouth College Library, I found over 200 letters in the St. Gaudens collection written by Gussie St. Gaudens, the wife of Augustus St. Gaudens, that have been of immeasurable value in unfolding and understanding their lives together as bride and groom in Paris. The great national park site at Cornish, New Hampshire, the St. Gaudens home, is, to my mind, one of the most interesting of all our national park sites. And if you've not been there in your own state, by all means, make a pilgrimage. It is marvelous, it's beautiful, and the chance to look at the great array of St. gaudens sculpture is um, indisputably uh, surpassing. There's nothing like it anywhere. You probably know his uh, Shaw Memorial, which stands on Beacon Hill in Boston a tribute to the 54th Regiment, the first all-black unit in the Civil War. In my view, and the view of many, the St. Godin's masterpiece is the first, imagine this, the first work of American art ever to portray African Americans as heroes. So St. Godin's uh, understanding of the participation of African Americans in our story was not only admirable and empathetic, but also clearly ahead of his time. We historians and biographers aren't the only ones who are writing history, and very often it is in our art, in our in photography, in painting, in portraits, in sculpture, and in architecture, that we find the expression of what our story means better said than anywhere else. I'll just close with a story of my own Experience and why I took the path that led to this book. I was driving down uh, Massachusetts Avenue in Washington one morning and got to a Sheridan Circle, which is just beyond Embassy Row, and there was a big traffic jam. Every, everything stopped, and I was looking over into the circle, and there in the middle of the circle is the equestrian statue of General Phil Sheridan, and he's up on his high horse, and he has the requisite pigeon on his head, and and uh, I was thinking, I wonder how many people riding around this circle have any idea who that is, or why it's called Sheridan Circle. And just as I was mulling this, uh, Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue came on the radio. And, and I, I was transported as one is by it, and I forgot for the moment how frustrated or annoyed I was by the traffic jam. And then I began thinking, Here's this magnificent piece by Gershwin. It's just a part of, part of life for me and anybody else listening to it. And he is still here in that music. And who's more important? Who's more important to the American story, to the American soul, if you will? General Phil Sheridan or George Gershwin? Well, the answer is they're both important. But you can't leave Gershwin out. That's the point. You can't leave Gershwin out. And so I embarked on my... Expedition. And four years later, it makes me feel warmed up as I never have before, and that's my talk. trip over to, to Europe was awful, and nobody did it for pleasure. Some of those people would be out there for more than two months. And um, when, they, when they finally landed, usually at Le Havre, uh, they realized that um, they'd been through something uh, that was as difficult and as unusual as anything in their, in their experience. But then they took the overland trip up to uh, Paris uh, stopping almost always at Rouen, which was halfway. And they saw the great Rouen Cathedral for the first time. And that was, that was a um, life-changing experience. Emma Willard, the first American woman to champion higher education for women, wrote, I guess, the finest of all descriptions of how she felt. But Charles Sumner did too. He talked about seeing the cathedral and feeling for the first time in his whole life the prestige of age. Here they were, here they were looking at a, at a structure that was hundreds of feet taller than anything in this country, and uh, to see sculpture, exposed sculpture on the exterior of a building. Keep in mind that in the 1830s, Independence Hall, which would have been one of the great old historic buildings of the United States, was less than 100 years old. And here they were looking at something begun in the 13th century. It was a jolt. And it was then that they realized that the greater journey had begun. Mm-hmm. Greater even than the voyage across the Atlantic.
0: And so many revelations to come about art and food and music. And, and wine. One in, and, and, which, <laughs> a little of that.
1: Which, which was cheaper than milk.
0: And morality. Yeah. You know, a sort of different sense of morality than certainly in Puritan Boston for many of them.
1: Well, yes, Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote Letters Home in which he said to his Calvinist parents, it was all right to go to the theater, and they need not tear that part of his letter off before (laughs) they showed it to other people.
0: (laughs) But other revelations, like for Charles Sumner in particular, seeing black students at the Sorbonne, that uh, people of African descent were treated differently. It was a moment
1: of epiphany for Sumner, and it not only changed him, it consequently changed, changed our story, it changed our history. Charles Sumner went over, he was a graduate of Harvard and of the Harvard Law School, and he opened a law office in Boston, and after about two years, decided that he really had an inadequate education, he didn't know enough, and that he was going to France to attend lectures at the Sorbonne, which was then, if not the greatest, certainly one of the greatest universities in the world. And the French had a policy that you could attend the Sorbonne, or the Ecole de Médecine, the medical college, which was the greatest medical college in the world, for nothing if you were a foreign student. So all they had to do was get there and be able to pay for their room and board and they could attend these great institutions. Sumner began to notice and think about the black students around him and was noting how they were treated just like everybody else, dressed like, dressed like everybody else, talked like everybody else, acted like everybody else, and had the same kinds of ambitions as everybody else. And he wrote in his journal, I wonder if the way we treat black people at home is the result of how we've been taught or whether it's part of the natural order of things. And that was an epiphany for him. He came home, got into politics early, got elected to the United States Senate in his early 40s, and became the most powerful voice for abolition in the Senate and almost to the cost of his life, because he's the one that was attacked on the floor of the Senate from behind by an irate congressman from South Carolina who nearly beat him to death with a heavy Gouda Percha walking stick, one of the most dreadful scenes ever to take place on the floor of the United States Senate. He never really recovered from that attack, either psychologically or physically, but it was also news of that attack that caused John Brown out in Kansas and his followers to commit what became known as the Pottawatomie Massacre, where they descended upon a number of innocent white Kansans uh, and murdered them. Mm -hmm. And that then fanned all the fires that eventually led to the Civil War. And through the Civil War, Sumner remained Lincoln's most powerful uh, supporter in the Senate and the most powerful voice against slavery. And so that One episode in Paris at the Sorbonne, that one entry into his journal, is the pebble, if you will, dropped in the pond and the ripple effect was phenomenal.
0: I'd love to dig into some of the characters that you mentioned earlier. Samuel Morse, um, best known for the Telegraph and the Morse code that bear his name. But you devote a whole chapter to him painting, a gallery at the Louvre. And it's a lot about his relationship and great friendship with James Fenimore Cooper, but what was he trying to do with that painting?
1: Samuel F. B. Morse went to Paris as a painter, a very accomplished painter. He had done portraits of major figures, including Lafayette, but he wanted to improve himself. He wanted to to excel. And when he was there, he got the idea of doing an interior of the Louvre, portraying what he considered to be the most uh, important masterpieces in the collection of the Louvre. So he picked his favorites, mostly all Italian Renaissance masterpieces, including Leonardo's uh, Mona Lisa, and uh, several by Titian and and uh, others. And he hung them in the Salon Carré, uh, which is the uh, part of the Louvre that's still very much there. But it was never hung that way in reality. That was how he would hang it in his idealized version. And the. I- What he hoped to do was to bring this home, huge painting, six by nine feet, bring it home, and then Americans could go and see these masterpieces for the first time because there were no color reproductions and there were no museums in which you could go and look at paintings. He had a kind of evangelical mission, if you will, to bring culture back to the United States in that form. But what happened was, since so many of these paintings were hung way up high, he had to build a movable scaffold that he could wheel from spot to spot where the paintings happened to be hanging in the Louvre. So he put this huge canvas on top of the scaffold. And of course he himself became a tourist attraction <laughs> in, the, uh, in the Louvre. And his friend James Fenimore Cooper came over to the Louvre every afternoon to sit with Morse and to chat with him and kid him a little bit and keep his morale up. And then in the midst of all this, the first cholera epidemic ever to hit Europe struck and people were literally dying in the streets of Paris outside the walls of the Louvre Museum. 18,000 people died in Paris in less than six months that summer. And yet Morse kept painting because he was determined to finish it before his money ran out, and Cooper couldn't leave town because his wife was too ill to be moved. She didn't have cholera, but they didn't know what was wrong with her. And so he came to keep Morse's morale up, and we know that Morse was terrified because he was writing letters home to his brother saying, I don't know any night when I go to bed if I'm going to die in the middle of the night. They all felt that way. It's a marvelous example of sheer determination, but also of a friend in need.
0: A number of people have asked about your research, asking, do you have a team of researchers that assist you, or do you do most of it on your own for each book?
1: I do not have a team. I have a one-man team. His name is Mike Hill. He's been my research assistant for 25 years. He'll, he'll never get sufficient credit for how much he's done. And he was the one who uncovered this uh, magnificent diary kept by Elihu Washburn, which he found, of all places, in the Library of Congress. <laughs> they didn't know they had it.
0: Oh, and it is fascinating.
1: It's going to be published by Simon Schuster sometime in the next year or so.
0: Well, give us more about that. They had suffered a stinging defeat in France in the Franco-Prussian War. The Germans rolled in, no telegraph, cutting off all the roads. And Elihu Washburn is writing about this. What does this give us that we haven't seen before about the Commune and the siege?
1: Well, first of all, it gives us a sense of how horrible it was. It was the ultimate nightmare. The city of nearly two million people was being starved to death, intentionally. So eventually they were eating everything and anything, and it's, it's pretty gruesome. And the Americans were there, Americans were going through it, and this man, Washburn, recorded it. He saw it all. And then when the commune broke out, the Civil War, Frenchmen killing Frenchmen, and the commonards had captured the Archbishop of Paris and were going to execute him, Washburn did everything in his power to save that man's life. And again, Washburn was not a Roman Catholic. He just felt that it was his duty. He, he did not succeed. But Washburn tried. But what he also succeeded in doing, for which he's never gotten any credit uh, that I know of since, he did then, but not sufficiently, when the war broke out, there were something like more than 20,000 Germans living in Paris. Now these were uneducated, uh, illiterate people. They were the street cleaners and the garbage collectors and the laundresses and and when the war came, they were perfectly innocent. They weren't spies. They weren't planted there. They were there because they were desperate to make a living. So the German government wanted them out of Paris. They wanted to save them. The French government wanted them out of Paris, but neither government was ready to do anything about it. So they delegated Washburn to do it. And that man organized an exodus of twenty more than 20,000 people out of Paris, night after night after night. And he succeeded. Got them all out, saved all their lives. An amazing feat of great heroism.
0: The period that you write about, we have the fall of the First Republic, uh, Louis-Philippe flees the country, the rise of the Second and Third Republics. How are the Americans negotiating this? What's going on with them as this political upheaval is behind them?
1: This was not, in Hemingway's expression, a movable feast for these young Americans. They were living through uprisings, revolutions. They were living through the whole redesign of Paris, the the uh, massive reconstruction of the city under Baron Haussmann uh, t- during the reign of the third And uh, the Paris that we know today is the Paris that was created at the time these people were there. The long boulevards, and the trees, the expanded Bois de Boulogne, all of that was done during this time. So they were living with per- perpetual change and often violent change and dangerous change. Uh, the disease, smallpox, cholera, It was not easy, and the young medical students, those studying at the Ecole Medicine, were often in the thick of trying to treat the wounded, treat the sick, treat the dying, and that too was no picnic. But none of them quit, despite all the pressures and the difficulties of their curriculum and their emergency help in these times of of, uh, calamity. Not one of them said, well, this isn't what I bargained for, I'm, I'm going home, not one.
0: What is it that the schools of medicine there in Paris offered that were not in the United States, and what did these students bring back?
1: First of all, they were training with the top physicians in, the, in Europe, which really meant in the world. But what was so importantly different about a medicine in America and in France had nothing to do with the science or very little to do with the science or the technique of medicine as much as it had to do with social mores and feelings about what was right and wrong in society. First of all, most American women of that day would have preferred to die than to have a man examine their body. And since all doctors were men, thousands of American women died. In France there was no such stigma. The second thing was that we had a great, strong resistance to the use of cadavers for dissection. And It was thought to be immoral, it was thought to be unethical, it was thought to be vile, and in many states it was illegal. So what that meant was that any body that was available for dissecting purposes was obtained through the black market, in other words, from grave robbers. And what that meant is that they were very expensive. Therefore, students almost never had a chance to dissect a human body. So what that meant was that the first time a young graduate of an American medical school began to cut open an arm or a foot or a knee. It was with a living person, not a cadaver. In Paris, cadavers were plentiful. There was no stigma against the use of them. And a major part of their training was in the dissecting auditorium. And the stench and the bloody, disgusting scene is almost more than one can bear to read about, let alone experience. But the attitude of the students was, this is tough, but we've chosen a tough profession.
0: And you write about another first, Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman- Elizabeth
1: Blackwell was the first American woman to become a doctor, and a very admirable, brave, persistent person she was.
0: Well, speaking of great characters, because there's so many in here, there's a question from the audience about how you come to choose a person, a topic, or a focus for your books.
1: I don't know. Sometimes I think it chooses me. I keep a running list of ideas. uh, But then there comes a point where something suddenly it just clicks and I think that's it. That's what I got to do. That's what I've done. And I don't think about whether there's a market for it or there's an audience for it. Uh, One night on Martha's Vineyard years ago, we went to a party and the host of the party introduced me to a woman who was of great social importance or at least so she thought, and and my friend said, this is David McCullough, he's writing a book about the Brooklyn Bridge. And she leaned back in her chair and put her head back and she said, who in the world would ever want to read a book about the Brooklyn Bridge? Well, I tried to contain my fury, but on the way home, poor Rosalie, I unleashed my, My disregard for that lady. But by the time we got back to our driveway, I realized that was a perfectly good question. And I thought, so what's your answer? And I thought, I would. (laughs) I would like to read a book about the Brooklyn Bridge. (laughs) And I'm going to write the book that I'd like to read.
0: Well, back to Paris, always.
1: Well, it's the same thing with this book. Some people say you want to write about Americans in Paris, 1830 to 1900, not Hemingway and Fitzgerald, not Jefferson, no, 1830 to 1900, because I would like to read Mm. that book. It doesn't exist, so I'll write it so I can read it.
0: And you get to write about Madame X. You spoke earlier about John Singer Sargent's portrait of Madame X. And I'd love to give the audience a little bit more of that backstory because so many people think that you know Parisians were scandalized by this portrait, but there was a lot more to it than that.
1: Well, first of all, Madame X was not a French lady, as most people, everyone assumes she was. She was an American. And she used some kind of very pale, white, almost lavender powder on her arms and chest and face and made her look almost deathly. And uh, Sargent saw her, and they were about the same age, and he said, I've got to paint her. So he painted her in a rather uh, twisted uh, pose, where she's showing her profile to its, to its utmost, and she's a very low-cut dress, and it was considered sensational, erotic, uh, scandalous, and yet it hung in in the museum where it was first shown, along with a great many nudes that nobody was particularly bothered by. (laughs) And um, uh, the French can be just as inconsistent as we can be. (laughs) (laughs) And it was scandalous, and uh, people were outraged by it, but mainly because she was a person of social importance, that that wasn't the way a true French lady would pose for a portrait. And her mother, who wanted the portrait painted, and she herself had wanted the portrait painted, disowned the portrait and wouldn't take it, wouldn't pay for it. So Sargent kept it and called it Madame X and eventually gave it, sold it for practically nothing to the Metropolitan Museum and said in the note with the painting that this may be my greatest work.
0: American politics and Americans have endured periods of loving and hating France, you know, most recently the kind of simmering division in 2003 uh, when freedom fries came into vogue. What's behind that? What do we misunderstand about each other as countries, do you think? Uh, Yes, we've
1: had our low points with the French. Uh, We almost went to war with the French uh, after the Revolutionary War when John Adams was president, and if John Adams hadn't had the courage to stay out of the war, which made him exceedingly unpopular and caused him to lose the election uh, with Jefferson, we would have gone to war and it would have been a terrible mistake because we were totally unprepared and couldn't afford a war. Um, This business of not affording a war is not new to us. Mm. Uh, (laughs) um, But that aside, our connection to France, our relations to France, our the Im- impress of, of France on our story, on our country, on our culture, is far, far greater than most Americans have any idea or are willing to accept, uh, largely out of ignorance. I find that most of the people who have a kind of anti-French feeling have never been there. Uh, they've never eaten there. <laughs> And uh, if you look at the map of the United States, look at all the French names scattered all over the place. Towns, rivers, uh, creeks, cities, colleges, universities. Our capital city was designed by a Frenchman. The great symbolic welcoming emblem of who we are and what we stand for at the entrance to our greatest harbor, the Statue of Liberty is a gift from France. We gussy ourselves up with French cuffs and French perfume. We love uh, French windows, and we've made uh, French fries a national staple. Uh, We go out and we say we're we're putting on the Ritz. Well, that's not the Ritz in Boston, that's the Ritz in Paris. (laughs) And, And let's not ever forget that more Americans are buried in France than any other country in the world except our own. 60, 61,000 American soldiers buried in France at the Argonne and at Normandy and nine other cemeteries that you don't hear as much about. A sacred ground for us, and every American should know that, and if possible, go and visit those great tributes to that part of our story. My, in my own work, I think, as a measure of this, I spent a good part of my time working on john adams in paris doing research on the time when john adams franklin and jefferson were all in paris my book about the panama canal a very large part of the of the whole story is about the french and the and what we we took over from them what they accomplished for us that saved us the anguish and the loss of life that uh, would have been ours had we tried to do what they did when they tried to do it the story of harry truman and he and his experiences in World War I in France. All of that I had to work in France, in Paris. I had to walk the walk of Truman's battlefield at the Argonne, all of that. So I've had this realization of the connection between our story and the story of France for a long time. And it's not just Lafayette that helped us in the Revolutionary War. The French, with the Dutch to be sure, helped finance the war. We could not have fought the war without French money. And most people have no idea that when the surrender of Cornwallis came at Yorktown, the army under Rochambeau was larger than the army under Washington, and neither army would have succeeded against the British had not the French fleet arrived right off the coast there of the Virginia Peninsula at exactly the right time to close the trap, and Cornwallis had no escape. And we doubled the size of a country with the Louisiana Purchase from Napoleon. It goes on and on and on. And it's infinitely interesting. <laughs> infinitely human.
0: Well, this, this may be a very related question, but I wonder if you have anything to add. What would you prescribe to counter the cynicism that prevails in this country?
1: I think most of the cynicism stems from self-centeredness and uh, self-pity, preoccupation with appearances, Imagine we have a magazine called Self. Uh, (laughs) But I think what bothers me most is television. I feel that when you think of what a powerful medium it could be for education, for generating an appreciation for, for what it means to be a citizen, for example. It's as if we've invented fire and all we're doing is burning things down with it. And this hunger for publicity and celebrity and it's so silly. We're living in a very serious time and we are a serious people and we can do great things. We know we can. We've done it before. I just wonder, will we be cathedral builders? Can we be cathedral builders? Not in the literal sense, but what will we do? What will we make? What will we what will we have in the way of an idea that, that we would like to be known for, remembered for, in time to come? I think one of the most important byproducts of an understanding of history is that it, it develops the realization that we too are part of history and that we are going to be judged by history just as we judge those who went before us. And how are we going to measure up? Are we measuring up to those who went before us? And are we gonna be looked back upon as a kind of trivial bunch of quasi-voluptuaries interested only in uh, material comforts? Or did we have some underlying confidence, uh, belief in values, in what matters in life? Of course we do, of course we do. And we just have to not wait for the politicians to lead us, but. To remember, we lead the politicians. And, and And thus it has always been. The country is always ahead of Washington. The country is always trying to get the people in the legislatures to catch up with what we need, what we want, and what we can do. We have to realize that the exceptional leaders are the exception. We can't expect every president to be terrific. They never have been. It only happens once in a while. And we have to remember that a sense of history, a knowledge of history, is one of the common ingredients of all great leaders. They all have had it, without exception. The presidents, for example, the strongest, most exceptional presidents have been those presidents that knew history. And that's why it's so essential that we re-establish the importance of history in the country and in the school system.
0: There are a lot of things that Americans don't know about our history. And I'm wondering, how does that concern you when politicians or presidential candidates or possible presidential candidates and no longer politicians get historical facts wrong?
1: How can you, how can you love your country and profess your love for your country? Make a thing about your love for your country and not have any interest in your country's story or any grounding in the story. (laughs) This is not, it's not the fault of the students. It's not the fault of our children. Our grandchildren. We have to do a lot more than we're doing as citizens, not just voting, a lot more. I would strongly recommend that people spend as much time as possible uh, in the countries from which we came, wherever that country might be, particularly if it's your own people, to get a greater appreciation of how much we owe to cultures prior to our own, uh, to the use of the English language, for example. Uh, the degree to which um, uh, the literature, let's say, of England, Ireland, Scotland is part of us. that isn't American, but is part of us that we can be proud of. I would urge, urge people to see more of our own country and to get out and talk to people and to ask questions. I'm very concerned that we're stressing to our students, to our young people, the need to be able to answer questions and not encourage them to have questions and not be timid about asking a question which may seem stupid. That's how you learn. I would encourage people to go to places like Iceland, sure, or, t- or to uh, uh, Panama, certainly, but don't just go and walk around and look, talk to people, ask questions. I try to tell students there isn't a soul you will ever meet in your whole life who doesn't know something that you don't know. I like to say in the words of the great Jonathan Swift, may you live all the days of your life.
0: Mm. Well, David McCullough, I feel like I've had a lesson and I bet all of you do too. Thank you so much.